Amen. So that's the Word of God, Mark 3, 22 through 30. As we've been walking through the book of Mark, we've led up to this point, something's happening. And Brenda just read for us uh, something that for a long time has, or when I was a child and a teenager, has raised a lot of questions. Like, okay, what does this mean? There's a sin that's unforgivable. And so eventually we're going to get to that portion of the scripture, but there's a lot of good in here that we can easily miss if we um, just jump to that. Um, But before we get into Mark, um, today is a day that we recognize nationally as Mother's Day. And so we want to take just a moment to let you guys know, hello, to let you guys know that we love mothers, uh, that we are very grateful for the beautiful gift of motherhood. And we see that in, in our, or the way we do Sunday morning worship gatherings, we see that expository preaching at some point, preaching through books of the Bible, motherhood will be addressed, parenting will be addressed. And so we hold to this uh, system of uh, exposing to the, the church what the Word of God commands of the church, uh, instructing the people of the church according to the Bible because we think it's the most effective way to communicate the Word of God, that we work through passages of Scripture. Uh, occasionally, we'll do topical sermons. We do that in September when we walk through who we are as a church and whatever form that comes. And we do that every January. We, we walk through, okay, here's what we see we should start the year with, prayer, the Word of God, seeing all life is, is, sancti- or is sanctified, it's made good, it's it's before God in a good way, in the image of God, human life has purpose. So we look at the sanctity of life, and then we look at racial reconciliation. So those are topical sermons that we still use the Word of God for, and we preach uh, exegetically, meaning we see what the Word of God says, and we preach, here's what it says about these topics. And we could do that with Mother's Day, we could do that with Father's Day, uh, but we see the Spirit leading us to continue in this book of Mark, and, and knowing that parent, parenting will be addressed at some point. That's not to say we don't value motherhood. We want to be careful, though, not to exalt anyone other than Christ on this Lord's Day. And so we're not going to have a topical sermon on mothers this year. Maybe next year. Maybe not. Either way, it's going to be about Jesus. So what we do want to say about mothers today is we love you and we're grateful that God has given us mothers. And we know that not all moms are perfect. In fact, no mom is perfect. Not even Mary, according to the Catholics, she is, but she's not. Not even Mary, the mother of Jesus, was perfect. So no mother ever has been perfect, but we do have a good and gracious God who loves us and uses even the mistakes, even the the screw-ups for our good, the good of those who He's called according to His purpose. And so, Let's love God, let's worship God, let's exalt God, and let's thank Him for mothers. I'm grateful for my mom. And I know some here, your mom's no longer with you. And I know some here, you may not have a a relationship with your mom currently that, that you would call any sort of healthy relationship. But let's exalt God, who is the giver of all good things, and see that He's still faithful. He's still good. And let's be grateful for moms. All right, so I'm going to pray for our mothers, and then we're going to get get into Mark chapter 3. Father, we are amazed that you give us such good gifts. We praise you for the gift of our salvation, knowing that only through Christ is it possible that, that we and ourselves are wicked and evil and seek only to satisfy ourselves, but you freed us from this endless cycle of self-gratification and knowing that in Christ we are satisfied fully and forever. We thank you for the truth that all sins are forgiven. We thank you for beyond that you bless us in ways we don't deserve. And so in in light of that, we praise you for the good gift of our mothers who at the very least have given us physical life. And and we thank you for ways they've, they've trained us and led us to love you and to love your word. And even those who have fallen short, we praise you that, uh, that even in, in those difficult things, even in those mistakes, even in the ways in which they've hurt us, that still you're a faithful God that can use all for our good. And so we exalt you this morning. We lift high the name of Christ. And we praise you for the, for the good gifts you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. 
Mark chapter 3, 22 through 30. We're going to walk through this passage and see for the benefit of the church and for the benefit of the mission of the church that we should not sin against the Holy Spirit. I think that is a, a pretty evident thing in this, but also we should be grateful for the work of Jesus Christ. And, and these are truths always, but I think they're very clear here in this passage. So let's look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of the demons he casts out demons. So, these scribes have become the default opponents to Jesus. They are the ones who are out to ruin his fame. They want to come against him, to discredit him, and defame him before everyone. And it says here they're sent from Jerusalem, so they're likely, again, the scribes of the Pharisees. They're coming from the Sanhedrin, these, these council of religious leaders. And they're coming before Jesus, seeing the things he's doing. And now they've, they've progressed from this questioning to themselves, to this questioning the disciples, to this questioning Jesus. And now we see that they are directly, straight up saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons, casts out demons. So Beelzebul is a derogatory pun, and, and it's an insult to Jesus. It's a pun because it's this play on words. This, the Biel, Biel part is reference to the pagan god Baal, that you may know, Baal. And Baal is, is a false god. He's not really a god, but at the, if he shows any sort of power, it has to be demonic. There's only demon, Satan, and then there's God. But it's only possible when God allows it. So there are times the Jews have witnessed power that's not of God. And they say, okay, well, this must be the demons. And this is what's going on here. They're seeing this power in Jesus. And, and then the Zebul is, is a reference to a prince. So that's why they call him the prince of demons. So they're saying this power that we're witnessing, they're, they're admitting this power is real. We can't deny it. He's clearly healing the sick. Clearly, people who've never walked are walking. It's evident that he has power, so they've resulted in this, okay, it has to be Satan. It has to be demons doing this, because it can't be God. They've recognized the power is real, but then they deny it to themselves, and they're denying it to others that it's God. And, and, and they would even go as far as to say, well, it's got to be Satan, which, which says something about how we say, you, you may have heard people say, well, I would believe in God if He would just show me He's real. If He would just give me a sign. A- apparently, evidently, that's not the case. Because these guys have it right in front of them. He's saying He's God. He's doing the things by the power of God, and yet they're still denying it. So though there is evidence for our faith, we see that faith is not a result of proofs. Our faith is a result of a gift from God, and only by hearing the Word of Christ. So they've heard it, but they've not believed it. They, they hear his teaching, but it's not truth to them. They're continuing to deny it, even to the point of saying his source must be Satan. The source of his power and his, his authority has to be demons, to which Jesus responds, come here, let me tell you why that's dumb. Verse 23. And he calls them to himself, and he says to the, them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So Jesus draws them near. The the wording he uses here, it's indicative of this is important. Like, come here, come close, listen to this pronouncement. You need to understand this. Gather near, listen closely. If what I'm doing is fundamentally and, and diametrically opposed to Satan, how then can, it, can I be empowered by Satan to do what I'm doing? Like it's, a, it's a logical argument. Like What you're saying doesn't even make sense. Do you hear yourselves? Like I, I'm here doing all these things working against Satan, and you're trying to say that Satan is empowering this? It's actually become a logical argument. The reduction to absurdity is, is what we know it as. It's, it's, your premises don't follow necessarily to this conclusion. You're trying to say, okay, well, this guy's here destroying the authority of Satan, taking back everything Satan has stolen. With this power conclusion, he must be empowered by Satan. It's absurd. 
It doesn't make any sense. And so he continues, and following this, he does a corresponding parable, 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So following what he just said, whose house is this? Satan's house. So who's the strong man? Well, it's Satan. And if this is Satan's house and he's the strong man, what is Jesus saying he's doing? He's doing exactly what he says can't be done. No one takes plunder from a strong man. That's precisely what Jesus is doing. He has, as the Son of Man, stronger than the strong man, He has bound Satan and will eventually bind Satan for eternity. He's, he's taking back what has been stolen from God. And, and 1 John 3 verse 8 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Prophesied in Isaiah 49, 24-25, Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of the tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the, t- of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. This is the Lord. This is what we heard in Revelation at the beginning of this worship gathering. This is the, the word of the Lord, that He would come and bind the tyrant, that He would come and bind the strong man and take back what does not belong to that strong man. That this kingdom of Satan that is being referenced in this passage, this kingdom, this is the house of Satan. He has been given permission by God to rule the world, and Jesus has come to put an end to it. Fittingly, Mark, in his telling of this gospel story, the first miracle Mark writes about is the the exorcism of a demon-possessed man, taking the demons out. And then then he goes on to to speak of those being delivered from their sickness and their illnesses and and delivered as a leopard in exile and and brought into this this family of Christ as those who have abandoned the the family of God and, and forgiven of sins, he says to the paralytic. So Jesus is moment by moment undoing all this working of Satan. All that God has allowed to happen. So calling Jesus demon-possessed, controlled by Satan, could not be further from the truth. He is binding and destroying the work of Satan. And Jesus draws everyone close to hear this very important truth. And then He doesn't stop there. He continues and explains the dangers of such an accusation in verse 28. Truly I say to you, and Jesus says this a lot, He wants you to know look, this is true, which means it's not going to be easy to hear, but truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying He is an unclean, he has an unclean spirit. Alright, so there's these opposing absolutes here. That all sins are forgiven and those who sin against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. How can it be? There needs to be some harmonizing here. And I say harmonizing because it does go together. We can't say reconcile Scripture because it's never not connected. There's not a true contradiction in Scripture. It doesn't need us to reconcile it. Does that make sense? We harmonize what seems like it doesn't go together. We need to harmonize because it goes together beautifully when we understand it. But no doubt there's something glaringly concerning about this passage. There's this warning that, it, that, among, that it's among the most scary things Jesus ever says. That there is this sin that cannot be forgiven. It's difficult to interpret. It's difficult to accept. But it's true. There's this sin Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that can never be forgiven. It's, it, you're guilty of an eternal sin. There's no hope if this sin is committed, which is scary, if we're honest. And often out of fear, many, especially in youth and college ministry, many have come to me and asked, what's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I've got to make sure I'm not doing this. <laughs> right? They, they want to make sure they're not guilty of this eternal sin and and I would tell them like I tell you today and I would just do it briefly hey 
If you're concerned about it, then you're not doing it. If you feel conviction, that's the Holy Spirit. You can't be resisting if you feel the conviction. All right? So that's the short answer. Let's move on. But I think that it's imperative of us to go a little deeper today. I think that if what Jesus is saying is true, it would behoove us to explore it thoroughly. Like, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit seems very important. What is it? And so we're going to do that, and and we're going to discuss it. Hopefully we'll find a lot of clarity. But let's not miss first what he's saying before he gets to that. All sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. That is an incredible truth that we take for granted. All sins are forgiven. How amazing is this God? Such grace that all of your sins are forgiven. Not one sin is not forgiven is what he's saying. All sin. So every action, every thought, every sinful thing you've ever done, your very nature as a sinful person has been has been forgiven. Let's not be so distracted by what follows. There's something unforgivable that somehow is outside of that. Let's not be distracted by that and miss that everything is forgiven. How gracious is God to forgive you? There's this weirdness that exists in us as believers. We feel like we're entitled to it. Like, of course we're forgiven. We deserve it. We feel that. Like, even right now, it may not feel like an amazing thought that all sins are forgiven because we have convinced ourselves that some reason we deserve it. But the truth is, if we were to ask you to stand up and tell us every thought you've had this week, every action you've done, or, or I've heard it said before, if we were to project on the wall just a scrolling list of every thought you've had this week, or even this morning, if everyone in this room was, was privy to all the thoughts you've had, we would be ashamed, right? We'd be embarrassed. Some of us would run out of the room, never to want to see any of these people again. And if you're not feeling that, then you're maybe guilty of a worse sin of feeling like, I'm not as bad as these other sinners, these heathens in here. I'm pretty good, so I'd probably handle it pretty well. Well, then you're arrogant. You're self-righteous. You think you don't need a Savior. That's, that's worse, I would say. We're all wicked sinners. And there's no escaping how much we deserve God's wrath. Yet He has shown great mercy and withheld His wrath and directed that wrath at, at the cross. He poured it out on Jesus. He bore all of your sins. Jesus paid it all. It's all covered. Every sin. All sins forgiven. Past sins. Present sins. Everything you'll do in the future. Every moment you turn from God. Every foolish step you take in the wrong direction. Forgiven. And that's good news. And that's worth celebrating. What then is this seemingly contradictory next line? What could he be talking about when he says there's an eternal sin? If all sins are forgiven, what is this unforgivable sin? How is it that anything is outside of Jesus saying all sins are forgiven? How is it there can be something not forgiven if all sins are forgiven? Let's talk about forgiveness. So forgiveness is a simple yet highly complex thing. And we know that because in concept, in theory, forgiveness, I get it. Someone shows remorse, someone apologizes, I forgive them. Certainly if it was an accident, right? We can forgive people if it was an accident. We'll let that go. Forgiveness is easy as far as a theory, but actually forgiving someone is incredibly difficult, especially when they don't apologize, when they don't show that they're sorry about what they did. We want to hold on to that. It's difficult. We want to fight it. We don't want to let them know that they're forgiven. Even if we, even when we decide we forgive them, we still don't want to let them know, which means you probably didn't truly forgive them. Forgiveness is a difficult thing to deal with. Even in our court systems, the legal systems, there's degrees of forgiveness, right? So in murder, if it's premeditated, thought out, planned out, and you murder someone, that, that's your life. You're, you've given your life up, death penalty. But if it's second degree and it wasn't premeditated, then there's maybe some lenience. Especially if it was an accident. Manslaughter or a crime of passion. We'll really let those go. I mean, you can even walk on the street again like a normal citizen. It was an accident, so let's forgive that. So why is this? Why do we do that? Well, it's simple. It's because it's easier to think they're not going to do it again. 
Especially if the jury is convinced that you're sorry about it. If you can convince them that you're remorseful and you feel bad about it, then they'll, let, they'll forgive you. That's how it works. It's built into us. If, if there's remorse, it's easier to forgive. And this is a shadow of something far more significant, just like most things are. Forgiveness, even for sinning against an infinite God, requires something. Repentance. We must repent of sin to be forgiven. There's, if there's no faith, there's no repentance, then there's no forgiveness. So, I'm not saying that there's a, a prerequisite for faith. There's nothing you do to gain faith. And faith and repentance are just two sides of the same coin. When you have faith, you repent. When you see that God's better, you go to God. So, God gives faith. Then we repent. Then we're forgiven. Now, it happens like that. Like it's fast. But repentance is required in order to be forgiven. So if there's faith, which comes by hearing the word of Christ, then there's repentance. And when there's repentance, there's forgiveness. And if any of that's missing, there's no forgiveness. Which is only to say, in order to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you must be an unbeliever. And if you're going to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you have to not have faith. To not be forgiven... You have to not repent. You have to not have faith. You have to not be a believer. Yet there must be more to this because it's not simply unbelief. So let's talk about what it's not. first one is that. It's not simply unbelief. Because by nature, all human beings are unbelievers. It's in our nature to, to, to run against God, to go for ourselves. By nature, all human beings are unbelievers. So if blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was unbelief, everyone's guilty. No one can be forgiven. It's an eternal sin. So it can't be unbelief alone. Secondly, it's not any one sin that's explicitly named elsewhere in Scripture. So we see some severe sins in Scripture, right? We see murder is a pretty bad thing. Well, it's, it's not murder because Moses was a murderer. David was a murderer. The Apostle Paul was a murderer. So it can't be murder. Murder is forgivable. How about adultery? Now, we don't always think adultery is a bad thing. We, we make excuses for it. Well, they weren't really loved by their spouse. It's okay. Or, or politicians commit adultery. We can let that go. If they smoke weed, well, no, none of that, right? We saw this with Bill Clinton. We made a bigger deal with the marijuana. Adultery in our culture is, for some reason, acceptable more so than murder. But it shouldn't be because it's a heinous crime. It is it's a sin against your spouse, this covenant relationship that represents Christ in the church. This is a horrible thing. It, it damages lives deeply that takes decades to recover from. Adultery is a horrible, horrible thing. But it's not unforgivable. We see David committed adultery. There is forgiveness for even adultery. What about suicide? Catholic Church says suicide is the unforgivable sin. Well, I don't see any evidence in Scripture that warrants such a conclusion. I don't think that you can say suicide is unforgivable according to the Bible. Although it's horrible, it's, it really is the epitome of selfishness, I don't think it is unforgivable according to Scripture. And you may say, what about confession? If you commit suicide, you can't confess it. Well, what if you're driving down the road and you yell out the F word and hit a pole and die? You didn't confess it. Are you forgiven? So let's, let's, let's rationalize it fairly. I don't, I don't think we can say you're not forgiven. Confession, yes, confess and you're forgiven. Confession isn't recognizing every single sin and naming it out loud to a priest or to anyone. Confession is a position of your heart. Confession is recognizing you're a sinner and admitting I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. So we confess and we're forgiven. But that doesn't mean if you don't utter the confession because you committed suicide, then you can't be forgiven. According to Scripture, I believe suicide is forgivable. It, and I had students, you students, when I was a youth pastor, asking me all the time, well, does this kind of person go to heaven? Does this person, what if they do this? And the answer is always the same. If they're a Christian, well, what if somebody is on an island and they've only heard the gospel once and... And, and no one else, they don't live in community, they don't go to church ever. Well, are they a Christian? Yeah, they're a Christian. Well, then they go to heaven. What if somebody commits suicide? 
are they a Christian? Yeah. Well, then they go to heaven. It, I mean, Christians are with God forever. That's as clear as it gets. So it can't be uh, any specific sin in Scripture. It's also, or it can be, but it's not. It's also not the denial or blasphemy of Christ. So Peter denies Christ explicitly three times after the crucifixion. Paul calls himself in 1 Timothy 1.13 a blasphemer. And Jesus says in, in this Matthew's recording of this very incident, he says that you can blaspheme me, but not the Holy Spirit. So it, it's not the denial or blasphemy of Christ. It's also not simply saying something against the Holy Spirit. Right? It's blasphemy is, the definition of blasphemy is speaking against something holy. So it's sacrilege. But it's, it's not simply saying something against the Holy Spirit. It's not, I declare bankruptcy and that worked. You can't just say it. I didn't say it. I declared it. It doesn't work. All right? You have to actually do something. So sin, more than actions, more than words, it's the position of your heart. So it's sinning against the Holy Spirit in your heart. So if you were mad at your mom at some point and you wanted to get back at her and you said, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Or if you're trying to look cool in front of your friends and you're like, so man, I'm blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That didn't do anything. It didn't, saying it doesn't do anything. It's not simply saying something against the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, it's not grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit, which is explicit in Scripture, but it's only done by believers. And we've already established you can't be a believer and do this. So if we have time at the end, we'll talk about what it looks like to grieve or quench the Holy Spirit. If not, I'll post it online. So it's important that we know what that is because we do it often. But that's not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But it is something against the Holy Spirit. So then we have asked, what is so special about the Holy Spirit? Is He not equal with the Father and Son? Well, He is. In essence, they're one God, one triune God. In every way, they are one God, except for they play different roles. So they have different roles in this triune Godhead. And so every person of the Trinity is equal in power and authority and importance and worthy of honor and praise. But for some reason, Jesus says, don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. So so what is it about the Holy Spirit that's unique? Well, it's His role in the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is responsible for regeneration. Our conversion is made possible by the grace of the Father to give the Son, the sacrifice of the Son to cover our sins, and the transformational work of the Holy Spirit within us. They all play a role in this act of salvation, but the Holy Spirit does the supernatural work within us to make us new creations by the sacrifice of Christ. Because of the loving grace of the Father. It's all this act of God to save us. So if we blaspheme the Holy Spirit, we reject the very one who illuminates our hearts to faith and repentance. And if we can't have faith and repentance, then there's no forgiveness. So who would do this? Well, unbelievers. And in in this Mark passage, Jesus is speaking to two types of unbelievers. Obviously, there's the religious, those there, the scribes, who think in themselves they've found righteousness. And so they resist any, any truth spoken by Christ. But we also see there, he's, he's speaking before his disciples. Last week we did, talked about what disciples are. We see there's, there's clear markers of what a disciple is. Well, there's some here who are claiming to be followers of Christ. Now listen, this is important. We see there's some claiming to be followers of Christ. They're saying, I'm a disciple of Christ. They're following Him everywhere He goes, but they're not His. They've they've not been saved. Judas was one of these. He betrays Jesus in the end. After living life along with the twelve, living life with them, going along, seeing the miracles, hearing every word He teaches, Even in the the intimate times when it's just the twelve, Judas hears everything Jesus has to say. He knows Jesus is the Son of God. There's no doubt he knows that. He's seen the power of Him. He He knows it's true. But he's denied it somehow. He's denied it's true. He doesn't believe it, though he knows it. And therefore, he rejects it. Just like the Pharisees have rejected now. It's not clear in this passage that anyone is actually guilty of this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but it's so clearly a warning to all of us, everyone listening, come close and hear, don't do this. And I think that 
This blasphemy of the Spirit seems to be a warning to those who are religiously living life as if they've earned righteousness and to those claiming faith, claiming to be a Christian, but in neither case has there there been any transformational work of the Holy Spirit. Pastor and theologian Sam Storms, who sounds like he belongs in a Marvel comic, Sam Storms, he says... This was not a one-time momentary slip or inadvertent mistake in judgment, but a persistent, lifelong rebellion in the face of inescapable truth. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not a careless act, but a callous attitude. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, therefore, is not just unbelief, but unashamed unbelief that arises not from ignorance of what is true, but in defiance of what one knows beyond a doubt to be true. It is not mere denial, but determined denial. Not mere rejection, but wanton, willful, wicked, wide-eyed rejection. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a hardened heart. It's rebellion of the soul. It's a conscious, ongoing resistance to the transformational work, the imperative and initial transformational work of the Holy Spirit. It's never being justified because though you know God is real, though you see the power of God, you would attribute it to something else. Some do this out of a superiority, a self-righteousness. I don't need it. Some would say, would hear it and listen but not believe it. They've already got it figured out. They don't consider the words to be truth worthy of belief. They've believed in His power and seen that it's real but somehow deny it as salvific deny that it can save they give credit to someone else as these scribes would give credit to Satan and when we, when we don't know we don't know for sure that these scribes are committing this sin we know that they're at least very close to committing it that Jesus would draw them in and give them this warning however it's not just occurring in the overtly self-righteous but it could be those among us Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 6 this is known as a, a passage of apostasy, those who are against the church. Uh, verses 4 and 6 says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of this age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God, to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. First John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might be complained that they are not of us. Matthew 7.21-23 Not everyone who says to me, this is Jesus saying, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These passages are terrifying. Because what it's saying here is this means that within the church, there's those who are not of the church. Those who have been near, who have tasted and seen that God is good, who have been witness to what the the church benefits the culture, to seeing God is living and, and well. He has power to save, to know it's real, but never be changed by it. This means there are those who we are calling brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who claim Christianity who are not Christians. They've not been changed by the Holy Spirit who are actively resisting some of whom may be guilty of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And and those guilty could be those members of the crossing church though I would say probably not because I I have relationships with you and I I see the gospel work in your life. I can't say definitively it's not 
Because I don't know your heart and we can't see hearts, but we go by what we know. And so we preach the gospel consistently and, and as vocally and live it out in our lives and be actively demonstrating what repentance looks like because we see the importance of repentance to feel conviction and to turn from our sin and turn back to God. We must repent. There's this internal conscious believing that Jesus is God, but choosing sin instead that at some point renders the resistor unforgivable. There's a line that if, it, if crossed, there's no going back. I don't know where that line is. None of us know where it is, but there's that line that's been drawn by Jesus in saying this. There's a line that if crossed, it's unforgivable. But those who would cross such a line don't want forgiveness. They don't even, they don't even sense the need for forgiveness. Though they know it's, it's true, they know God's God, they're, they're blaspheming. They're, they're saying the Holy Spirit's transformational work is unnecessary. And, it, and if nothing else, this should motivate us. I know it motivates me to call out my brothers and sisters who are living in sin. To draw them back to the Father. To see He is good. To see that He is good in a way that changes things. Not just thoughts. It changes who we are. This, this passage in Matthew 7 showed us that there's going to be some who, who would preach the name of Jesus. Who would even see miracles done in the name of Jesus, but never actually know Him. It's terrifying. And I have a greater angst now to see a brokenness over sin. A repentance, a turning away from a hating of sin and a, and a clinging to Christ of all those who would claim Christ as Savior so that we can stay far from crossing this line, reaching a point where when they would turn from the church, they would fall away, and then it would be impossible for them to be saved. D.A. Carson says, the New Testament reveals how close one might come to the kingdom. Tasting, touching, perceiving, understanding. And it also shows that to come this far and reject the truth is unforgivable. So it is here. Jesus charging that those who would perceive that this ministry is empowered by the Spirit and then for whatever reason, whether spite, jealousy, or arrogance, ascribe it to Satan, have put themselves beyond the pale of forgiveness. For them there is no forgiveness. And this is the verdict of the one who has the authority to forgive sins. So an important question this morning. Are you guilty of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Now if you are right now gripped with fear because you, you don't want that to be true. If you feel like you can't be forgiven. That you're beyond somehow beyond repentance. If you feel that feeling. Then I have two questions. One, are you a believer? If you can say yes, then you're not guilty. You're forgiven of all sins. All sins are forgiven in Christ. Everything's covered if you're a believer. Secondly, if you're not sure if you're a believer, are you concerned that you're guilty? Are you worried that you're guilty of this sin? And if the answer is yes, then you're not guilty. Because by definition, the this is an unending, unrepentant, unremorseful denial of the Holy Spirit. If, you, if the Holy Spirit is living in you, you cannot deny Him. If you feel conviction, that's the Spirit of God. You're not guilty if that's you. Those guilty don't want forgiveness. Those guilty are lost and dead in their sin, unaware that they're sinning, unaware that they need a Savior. And even if we're not guilty, this is applicable. I think it's abundantly clear that God is a jealous God. That He wants us to want Him. That because He knows He's best for us, He wants us to do away with all else and come to Him. He's graciously made it possible through the work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to forgive us of all sin. So if anyone would see that his gospel is good and gracious and real and understand its ability to sin 
and, and deliver us from this hopeless state. If anyone could see that and taste it and know that it's true, join a body of believers, be baptized by water, and consciously still reject that transformation. If anyone could do that, they're unforgivable. Because God is so jealous for us that He would long for us nothing more than to see He is good and He is better. He hates sin. Therefore, He hates blasphemy of the Holy Spirit the most. And He came to bind Satan. To to take back what didn't belong to Satan. To undo this curse of sin in the world and to save us from denial of sin of the blasphemy or denial of the Holy Spirit to to save us from denying His power to save. And we must reject it. We must reject this temptation we have to sin against the Holy Spirit. Even as believers, we must reject this temptation we have to sin against the Holy Spirit. And that's what we mentioned earlier. That's grieving the Holy Spirit. That's that's, uh, quenching the Holy Spirit in our lives. Hebrews 10, 26-31 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God hates sin. He wants for us to run from sin. To see that it's killing us. It will destroy us. He hates it. And this God is the God of all creation. A great God. A powerful God. Who will crush sin and all who stand against Him. He will crush them in the, in the furious fire that will consume all the adversaries. He will destroy sinners. In the book of Psalms we see not only does God hate sin, but He hates sinners. We often say we don't hate sinners, we hate the sin. That's true of us humans who don't have any concept of what God feels towards sin. So all sinners will be crushed. Everyone deserves hell for eternity. The wrath of God pouring out on sin. That's how bad your sin is. We stay far from it because we see how much God hates sin. That that Jesus would come and draw everyone near and say, Do not blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It's unforgivable. Do not sin against the Spirit of God who seeks to, to, for your good, transform you into a new creation free from all sin. Because good news, all sin is forgiven. All sin is forgiven. Have faith, believe, repent. I have come to bind the enemy. And all who stay with Him will be crushed. Repent of your sin. Come to Me. There's forgiveness in Christ. So let this be a warning to us to take seriously our offenses against this God. Take seriously your sin. Hate it. Fight it. Wage war against your sin and kill it. Or it will kill you. Jesus says... If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye looks towards sinful things, pluck it out. These extreme sayings are extreme for a reason. Do whatever it takes to stay far from sin. It's it's God coming to earth to do everything necessary to to put sin to death and then giving you this opportunity now to put sin to death in Christ. He's empowered you in every way. He's made everything possible. He's given you everything you need. Kill it. It's absolutely foolish to go anywhere near it. Do whatever it takes to stay far from it. 
I'm allergic to shellfish. And I love crawfish. Growing up, my favorite food is crawfish. Allergy developed over time. Now I'm extremely allergic. I can't be anywhere near crawfish. I hate that this time of year. Like I look forward to crawfish season like kids look forward to Christmas. I love crawfish. And I can't have it ever again. And so yesterday, the company Amelia works for, BDS, Behavior Developmental Service, had a big crawfish boil. Not only do I love the flavors and tastes of crawfish, but I love crawfish boils. Everybody, let's come together. Let's celebrate this wonderful gift of God to Louisiana, specifically. Crawfish. But because I know that literally, if I go near crawfish, I will die. I stay far from crawfish. No matter how much I want it. No matter how much the environment's going to be fun. The good times that will be had. The great flavors that will be enjoyed for a second. Until my throat closes and I die. And we do the same thing with our sin. We laugh about it. It's funny. I sinned again. There, there goes me, stupid sinner, sinning again. It kills us. It's killing us. And it grieves the Holy Spirit that He would do this work in us that's so good. He would give us everything our heart desires in Himself. That He would free us from our sin to thrive in life and experience goodness that we have no idea is there for us because we're too busy playing in the mud with our sin, thinking, oh, what fun it is to build mud pies when there's a holiday at the sea. There's things to be enjoyed far greater than what we think is this fun. We laugh it off like it's not that big a deal. But we should take this caution, this warning from Jesus that sin against the Holy Spirit is killing us. And for some who have not yet been transformed by the Spirit, it's unforgivable. As believers, I think we have enough time. So as believers, we can't be guilty of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but we can be guilty of grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit. Two passages just briefly that make that clear. Ephesians 4, verses 30 through 32. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 22. Yeah, but they're, they're on the screen. Ephesians 4 says... And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So we see some clear pictures. This is grieving. This is what you should be doing. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-22 says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not despise prophecy, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every evil from abstain from every form of evil. So what grieves the Holy Spirit and what quenches the Holy Spirit are virtually the same thing. Just some bullet points of this. It's a resisting of your sanctification. If blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a resisting of your justification, then quenching and, and uh, grieving the Holy Spirit is a resistance of your sanctification. This ongoing work of the gospel to make you more like Christ, to make you more holy. We resist it. And we do that by the indulgence of sin and our selfishness. So it's also being a Christian, but still refusing to sacrifice. Refusing to put aside your selfish desires and put to death the sin nature in you. Knowing that Christ has put sin to death, we are to be killing sin. We are to be putting sin to death. And to refuse to do that is grieving, quenching the Holy Spirit. And we know it's selfishness, but we, like I said earlier, we joke about it. Like, it's not that big a deal. And we refuse to take these steps to put it to death. It's also being faced with a choice of good and evil, knowing what's good for you, Knowing that it would be better if you were tenderhearted and forgiving, but then instead choosing to be anger, angry and resentful and bitter and hardened towards people. 
It's knowing the options are good and evil as a believer and choosing to do what's evil. That grieves the Holy Spirit. That's sinning against the Holy Spirit. And also, it's, it's consciously doing what we know is wrong or consciously do, not doing what we know is good. So in any example of life, doing the selfish thing, any example of life, worshiping idols, worshiping people, fill in the blank, whatever it is you're doing that you are aware consciously is not worshipful to God, doing it anyway is grieving the Holy Spirit. And this occurs in our lives in big ways and it occurs in small ways, but in any form, it's denial of the significance of our sanctification. By our justification, we are being sanctified. God has saved us, given us faith, we repent, and we're forgiven. And then we're to be at work putting our sin to death. Whatever's necessary, cut off the arm, pluck out the eye, put it to death. Otherwise, it's grieving the Holy Spirit, as we see in these passages. So let us take seriously our sin against the Spirit of God, who is at work for our good, burning out the impurities. It's not always comfortable. Sanctification often is difficult, but it's for our good. Let us see our sin and put it to death. Let us praise a Savior who has bound the enemy and given Himself so that we can be forgiven of all sin. Father, I thank You for Your Gospel. I thank You for the sacrifice of Christ. And I thank You for the work of the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to make us new. And I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters, and I pray for those who claim to be Christians yet live life resisting this Holy Spirit. God, break them. Keep them far from crossing this line into blasphemy of Your Holy Spirit. Keep us far from sinning that would grieve Your Holy Spirit. Let us feel the weight of our sin that's overwhelmingly crushing us and then see that Christ has lifted it from us. That belief in Him has freed us to live in the Gospel. To live out Gospel-changed lives. To live on mission. Putting to death the sin that remains. Putting to death our selfish desires being sanctified, being saved by the work of Your Spirit. And let us see this is true and something to worship in. And though we're broken because of our sin, we can celebrate the broken body of Christ, the taking of communion, the poured out blood that has washed us clean, the giving to this body in, in tithe and in offering, the seeing that the investment into this, the sacrifice of money, the sacrifice of time, the sacrifice of our energy is for our good, the good of the church and the, the rescue of our long lost brothers and sisters. They would know and believe the gospel. And for all that you're doing, for all that you will do, praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.